1 Corinthians 14. Here's what I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking, I know there are people here this morning, I'm not going to ask you to up your hand or anything, that are here either for the first time or second or third time, but they're fairly new. And uh, we teach through the Bible here, verse by verse by verse by verse. And most of the time when you come, it wouldn't have made any difference if you hadn't been here, say, last week or if this is your first time, that I'd be able to help you understand the passage uh, that we're going to study in the context that it's in. I want you to know what the Bible says in the context that it was written in and what it, how it applies to us. But this is one of those times where if you haven't been here for chapter 11, 12, especially chapter 13 last week, and now chapter 14, as we're talking about spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts, the, uh, the gift of hospitality, the gift of healing, the gift of uh, word of knowledge, the gift of word of wisdom, the gift of tongues, and the gift of uh, being able to translate tongues. It translates the wrong word, but to say what the tongues means and all of that. These are all spiritual gifts, and there are a lot of them, more of them than just the ones that are listed in, in a chapter 11 and 12, especially as we've been going through this. And uh, so, the chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 fit in. They're all a piece, of one piece. And, and you, if you just understood, for instance, uh, when we look at the uh, chapter from last week on love, love often is, is, is uh, the whole chapter is used as a poem, say, at weddings or something. And that's fine, but that's not why it was written. It was written so that we in a church would learn to love one another, to truly care about one another, and to have relationships with one another. And so I have um, called the sermon Confusion in the Church Gathered. We're the church gathered. You are the church. We are the church. And then in the previous sermons, in chapter 11, I called the sermon Avoiding Heresy. Do you remember that? Avoiding heresy. Uh, heresy, H-A-I-R, hair, a C. <laughs> and it was about women wearing hats in church and all of that type of thing. And then the next sermon after that uh, it was called The Anatomy of the Church in uh, chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul uses our bodies and all the parts of our bodies, our human bodies, our anatomy, as a picture of the church. So the church is a body. I'm a body, and my body has many parts, fingers, little toes. If you, if you were here, you know what I mean by that. And, uh, and all kinds of unseen parts, too. Try doing without one of the parts you can't see, like your heart, for instance. It'll kind of get in the way of you doing other things if you didn't have it. And so uh, we, we saw that we're all parts of the body, and we're all absolutely necessary, even the smallest parts, uh, and, uh, and the biggest parts are all necessary for us to have a relationship with one another and with the Lord Jesus Christ that we're supposed to have. And then after that, last week we did a sermon called Love or Nothing. And the love chapter is the most important chapter in understanding spiritual gifts because the love chapter makes it clear that love is everything. 
Love is what Christianity is all about. God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins and to go to the cross to rise from the dead so that we could not perish but be saved for all of eternity and our lives be changed. And so without love, and there's a, there are four words at least for love in the Greek language, and the word for love here is the word agape, which means the love of God. So we, he loved us who don't deserve his love because we're sinners, he loved us anyhow and sent a son who was not a sinner, who was God incarnate, that's the Christmas story, so that we could have a life that we could never have had before. And then the sermon this Sunday, this one, and uh, <laughs> I was hoping for the rapture, but here it is. And, uh, <laughs> if I were naming it something other than confusion in the church gathered in Corinth, with the Corinthian church, it's about that, I would have called the sermon intelligibility, intelligibility. Uh, intelligibility in the church, especially gathered is the top priority for the Apostle Paul, who's behind the authorship of this book called 1 Corinthians that we're studying. Now, let me just talk about church services uh, in Paul's day so we can understand and have a picture. I want you to have a, a mental picture of what the church looked like when this was written, because it's so different than it looks like now uh, from a point of view of the culture. In that culture, at that time, uh, people didn't have, some you'll be surprised, any social media, television, or anything like that, a couple of thousand years ago. And their houses were built in sort of an open-type way. They didn't have nice glass windows and soundproof rooms and, and uh, the front doors with uh, keypads key on them or anything like that. They were basically open and only closed up when the people went to sleep at night. And the people in the communities in that day uh, were always out on the streets on the way to trade for this or trade for that or sell this or sell that. And so wherever your house was, there were always people coming by your house. And they could, in a sense, see into your house. So we studied in the New Testament already where, where Jesus would be teaching in somebody's home. They'd be having a meal. But people from what we call the streets that are just outside would hear what's going on, would notice them, and they would walk in and listen to what was being said during that meal. They were uninvited guests, but nevertheless, they were still allowed to be there. That was just the norm. I ex I've experienced that, for instance, in, in Africa, in the South Sudan, and in Uganda, where if you go out in the daytime, there are thousands of men and women and children walking all over the place. We don't see that here. And we see women walking along. I've seen like three women walking along with great big water containers on their heads as if they were no big deal, talking to each other, and they're heading off and going to the wells and all of that kind of stuff. So therefore, that means that the churches didn't have a building like we do because Christianity was a new thing. And so everybody knew, though, everybody knew about this new thing called Christianity or the way or uh, the way of Jesus and all kinds of other things. And so as people would be walking along, they'd be meeting in houses. And you could imagine some people walking along and saying, oh, there's some of those, Christ those Christians. Let's go over and listen to them. Let's go see what they're saying, what they're doing. 
And so it would be common for people to come off the streets and come in to uh, the, the, the house or just stand around the house so they, they could hear everything going on and observe how these Christians, what they were doing during their meeting and, in, and how they were worshiping God. They knew they were a religious cult of some kind. And, so, and they all had different gifts. Now, so I want you to see that picture because Paul is concerned with what the church gathered together, what the people of the church look like to the people. And, and he wants them to make sure that they look, they look attractive. I don't mean to look at, say, they're beautiful people or something. They look, uh, the, what they're doing looks compelling, and maybe they want to be part of that. And they weren't doing anything really crazy. Now, when it comes to spiritual gifts, when you become a Christian... According to the Bible, you receive the Holy Spirit immediately. And the Holy Spirit within you, he is God, and when within you, uh, he gives you what I call a grace gift or two. So you'll, you get a spiritual gift, an ability to do something that you couldn't do before, and it's supernatural, and it changes your life, and it makes you part of the body of Christ, and you're like that puzzle piece that we need to fit all together. So we're all necessary and we're all needed. I like what John MacArthur uh, says. He says that Christians are spiritual snowflakes. And I kind of like this idea. His idea is uh, if you look at the snow falling, all the snowflakes look the same. But apparently, I haven't tried it. You look under a microscope, they're all distinct and different, even though they look the same. Well, that's the way we are. We look exactly the same. All of us look exactly the same, but we're different. And you understand what I mean by that. And so you receive a spiritual gift or two. Nobody has every spiritual gift, uh, and there's no one spiritual gift that everybody has. Uh, there's all kinds of gifts, even more than the lists that we have. And so there's, uh, I like to divide the gifts up this way. There's three ways to avoid spiritual gifts. There's being gifts, B-E-I-N-G, being gifts. That's who we are, and that's we're a gift to the body of Christ. Then you're necessary and needed no matter who you are. And then there's number two, doing gifts. Love does. That was part of what I said last week. Uh, the love chapter is full of verbs. They're like commands. True love does. It reaches out to people. True love does love people. And then the third one, there's are speaking gifts. The gift of prophecy, for instance, which we'll talk about here, is a speaking gift. The gift of tongues is a speaking gift. Uh, the, the gift of teaching is a speaking gift. Now, here's what's important before we get to the, ter to the sermon itself. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says this. Now, to each one, each one of us, He's writing to the Corinthian church, but it's, it's applicable to us still today. To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit of God, is given for the common good. So the gifting God gives us is for the common good. We're a family. We're a body. And the gifts are given for the common good. Now, Paul is most concerned about God speaking to the gathered saints. We're the gathered saints. Saints, by the way, if you don't know, is just a word in the Bible for Christians. doesn't mean we're perfect or anything like that. It's far from it. Uh, we're, uh, we're, saints mean the holy ones. We're called apart for God's purposes. And so when we gather together where the church gathered, 
the essential reason for intelligibility, and you'll see that in the text, is so that the Christians in Corinth can be built up in the faith, and that's why there are many grace gifts given throughout to, to everyone. We have gifts. So here's verse 1. So look in your Bibles, and you have to follow in your Bible or you will really get lost this time. Verse 1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. I would translate it or paraphrase it this way. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the things of the Spirit, especially the gift of prophecy. Now, he's going to do some contrast here to tell why that is. And think of the word intelligibility all the way through this. Verse 2, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. So the gift of tongues, which uh, is a, like a language, it's not a language, but it's a God thing, uh, is the gift of tongues is not a message to the people in the church. It's more of a prayer or a praise language from God. So verse 2 again, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people because they don't understand anyhow, but to God. No one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. So if someone were to stand up right now and you had the gift of tongues and you spoke out in tongues, it, we wouldn't have any idea what you're talking about. But on the other hand, verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Now, I never can forget this verse, S-E-C, strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. I was a stockbroker for a lot of years, and the S-E-C, they're the governing authority from the government, and you don't want to get in trouble with the S-E-C. So I always remember the verse. But it's, if for the Christian, the S-E-C is strengthening, encouraging, and comforting. It's the gift of prophecy. And verse 4, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. Paul's not putting down the gift of tongues. That's not a bad thing. He's not being sarcastic. He said anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. So that's good. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. That's better. Verse 5. So Paul says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. Now, he's very frustrated here because they're not doing the right thing, and the church is in chaos. And so he said, when he says here clearly, he says, you know, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. He's not saying that, he, that everybody's already said that not everybody speaks in tongues. But he says exactly the same thing in the same word structure in chapter 7, verse 7, for a different reason. He says, I wish all of you were like me. He's talking about marriage, and he meant when he said, I wish all of you were like me, how, what was he like? He was celibate. He wasn't married. He didn't mean that he wanted everyone not to be married. That would be the end of Christianity in no time at all. No, he said, I'd like everyone you to speak in tongues, but I would rather, you can just feel his I would rather that you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless, there's another gift, someone interprets. And the church, that the church may be edified. Intelligibility. Whatever happens in the church, if someone come in that has never been to church before, they should understand 
what's going on. They may not get it all right, but they should understand what's going on. So reading this chapter carefully makes it clear that prophecy does not describe a sermon being preached, but instead a spontaneous word from God given to the church for the edification of all present. Now look at verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, he's calming down a little bit here. If I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you? Unless I bring some revelation or knowledge, these are all gifts, or prophecy or word of instruction. You see, the problem in the Corinthian church was the answer to a question. What does it mean to be spiritual? What does a spiritual person look like? Some in the church are suggesting that truly spiritual people speak in tongues like they do. And Paul, while he was among them for a year and a half, pretty well never spoke in tongues. But he did do much teaching. Paul, on the other hand, wanted to correct their idea of a spiritual person, and he makes it clear he does speak in tongues. We'll see that in a minute. But when he again returns to Corinth, and he is coming back to Corinth to teach, he will be preaching sermons understood by all and not speaking in uninterpreted tongues. Now look at verse 7. Even in the case of lifeless things, this is illustrations, that make sounds, such as the pipe or the harp or the keyboard or the guitar, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? If I were to walk over here to the keyboard and just start hitting the keys and everything, you'd be thinking, I hope he doesn't do this for very long. But you bring our wonderful keyboard player uh, back, and you'd think, we don't need a sermon. This is better. And so uh, he says, again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? You see, these are obvious illustrations. I know about the trumpet when I used to be a trumpet player, and I've, I played in a, as a young man in a drum, a drum and bugle corps, uh, and it was a champion drum and bugle corps. And uh, when we played at events, uh, uh, we would do all our marching and, and play and everything, and then we'd always stay to watch the game and all that kind of thing because we'd sometimes use our instruments, and I would take my trumpet. I played all the high notes in the, in the, uh, with the trumpet, and I would take my trumpet once in a while. Uh, I'd watch in the game, and I'd, I'd go, da-da, da-da, and everybody would yell, Charge! But if I just had to held my trumpet up and just blowing a noise, people would have taken the trumpet from me and told me to keep quiet. See, that's, that's the picture here. So, so it is with you, Paul says. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, this tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of actual languages, and he's not talking about tongues here, French, English, Spanish, German, Russian, in the world, yet not one of them is without meaning. If, if then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. Easy, under, easy to understand. If Greg Allen were here, he's traveling right now, and I called him up uh, and uh, said, Greg, I want you to give us a, a quick 10-minute uh, like message 
Uh, Greg Allen is first language capable in Russian. That's not the only language, but he, that's, he's an American, but he's first language capable in Russian because of years of ministry in Russia. And he's very smart, very highly educated. Very, he really knows how to preach. And if he gave us a 10-minute fabulous sermon, the best thing ever in Russian, except for a very small handful of people here and there, nobody would have any idea what he was saying, so he'd be like a foreigner to us. And that's what Paul is trying to get them to image when they're all speaking in tongues during the service. So in verse 12, he says, so it is with you Corinthians, since you are eager uh, for gifts of the Spirit, that's a good thing, you can almost feel it. Try to excel in those that build up the church. Now, the gathering of the church is not for every individual to display a spectacular amount of tongue speaking to prove they are spiritual people. But the gathering of the church is to build up the church as a whole so we can become spiritual people. One writer puts it this way. I like this. The building up of the community, that's the church, is the basic reason for corporate settings of worship like we're doing now. They should probably not be turned into a corporate gathering for a thousand individual experiences of worship. You know, we do in this church body almost everything in reaching out to people. Somebody might say, well, I don't see you having people forward to come for healing. Oh, you have no idea how many times the pastors and the elders meet with people and anoint them uh, even between services or go to their homes or the hospital uh, for healing. It happens all the time. And almost every gift that you can find in the Bible, you'll find that in different settings, uh, they're done differently. But we're in the house church now. Try to get that back into your mind. We're in the house church, and people are walking all around us, and somebody is doing some kind of a message, and the people are walking around, they come in and they listen, and they hear what's going on. And if everybody's speaking in tongues, this is Paul's point, uh, it's like chaos. They wouldn't have any idea. They'd probably just leave, and we're, we're going to learn that that happens So, in a moment. Now, verse 13, for this reason, Paul says, for this reason. Remember, he says, try to excel in those Gifts that build up the church, verse 12, verse 13. For this reason, the one, the person who speaks in a tongue should pray that that person who's speaking in a tongue, that they themselves may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So in other words, if I pray in tongues, if I were to start to pray in tongues right now, that may encourage me, but it doesn't, have any, it doesn't help anybody else. So since the argument here is intelligibility, and since Paul has said uninterrupted tongues does benefit the one speaking in tongues, that's true, then Paul is simply stating that when he prays in an uninterpreted tongue, he, he is benefited, but others we, who don't understand would not be benefited. Paul is not saying, therefore, that it's a bad thing to speak in uninterpreted tongues when alone, but since it does not edify others, then think about that. So he now asks the question, verse 15. So what shall I do? Because that's what people are thinking. Well, but we're all speaking in tongues and that. So, so what shall I do? Verse 15. 
I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my understanding, with my mind. I'll sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with my understanding. So Paul is saying that he will both sing and pray in tongues when he's alone, but when he's in the congregation, he will pray and sing in their language, in his case, Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew. So they can understand and the body will be edified. Otherwise, verse 16, here's why I gave you the visual at the first. When you are praising God in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the power of the Spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer, they've come in off the street, say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you're saying? And by the way, when it says say amen, this is a common thing. Church was a little more participant. And I like it, and it happens here sometimes where people say, amen, or uh, preach it, brother, or sit down long enough uh, <laughs> as you're going along. Uh, but amen. yeah, <laughs> take that guy's, Jim, can you get that guy's name there? <laughs> so, uh, so, but you can't say amen if you don't have any idea what the person's talking about, if it just sounds ridiculous. And then in verse 17, he says, you're giving thanks well enough. You may, be, you may be giving thanks, but no one else is edified. And then he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Really? Well, the first question being the kind of thinker I am, it's not helpful sometimes. I'm saying, well, how do you know that? Well, that's not the point, you see. They don't think he speaks in tongues, if ever, hardly at all. They all speak in tongues all the time, in the church services especially. And he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. In other words, I know what I'm talking about. Now, this may be a shock to the contemporary ear who does not believe in tongues for today as a gift. Uh, tongues was not a form of revealing Scripture. Yet the ultimate writer of Christian doctrine, the Apostle Paul, makes it clear that tongues for him was an important part of his spirituality. And that's why he spoke in tongues a lot. And we'll see how much in a moment. Because it was important to his spirituality because he had that gift, but not everybody has the gift of tongues. But, verse 19, now he goes on with the illustration, but in the church, listen to this. I, the Apostle Paul, would rather speak in five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, listen, that doesn't hit us the way it would have hit them when they first heard this, because the word that we translate 10,000 uh, year, 10,000 uh, words, that isn't actually what it says. It's more like this. He's, he's, he's really saying, uh, the, the word means an infinite amount, an infinite number, beyond what you can count. So, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible worlds to instruct others than thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of words in a tongue. That's what he's saying. And it would have come across that way uh, to them. And then he says, verse 20, Brothers and sisters, you can, it's almost like, I just think he breathes out, brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be adults. 
grow up and think about those in the church who need instruction and stop showing off your so-called spiritual superiority and learn to care more for others than yourselves. That's what he's saying. Now, in Genesis chapter 11, you have to listen carefully to this to get it, we have the picture of the Tower of Babel where they tried to build the ziggurat and, and the, to heaven. And, uh, and so in the, the picture of the Tower of Babel where God instigates various languages to confuse the people and separate them, and they disperse worldwide. They were all in the same language, and they had decided we're going to get to heaven with their own works. Now, the multiple languages were a sign, that's the word, the key word, a sign of judgment on the Tower of Babel on the people. At Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that's the first sermon of the church 2,000 years ago after Jesus rose from the dead and went back to heaven. At Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, tongues, there was a, a, an outbreaking of tongues. It became a reversal of Babel and everyone understood what was being said in their own language and what was being said was the gospel of Jesus Christ, how to be saved for all of eternity. Another example. In Samaria... God's people, this is back in the Old Testament, a long time ago, were getting drunk all the time and, and uh, uh, complaining about God's rules. And even the religious leaders, even while they're doing sacrifices, were so drunk they'd be throwing up and complaining about God's commands. It's, it's incredible to read about. So God sent the Assyrians whose language they couldn't understand as a sign of his displeasure, a sign of judgment. And Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah chapter 28, wrote about it in his prophecy. And later on, you should read through chapter 28, especially verses 11 and 12, but we have 11 and 12 here in verse 21. So look back in our Bibles. Verse 21, Paul says, In the law... It is written, Isaiah 28, 11, and 12, with other tongues, in this case languages, through the lips of foreigners, the foreigners are the Assyrian troops, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Those languages those that, that they did not understand was a sign of judgment. What's the point? What's the point Paul's making? He's saying tongues does not lead people to obedience. And so, now I'll do my best to help you understand this. It's, you really need to know your Bible in a way. Tongues then, verse 22, are a sign. Remember I said the word sign of judgment often. Not for believers... You know, not, the, the, the tongues isn't a sign for believers. If somebody speaks in tongues, they must be a believer. But for unbelievers, really, unbelievers, those who don't believe. Now, prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, because they wouldn't get it, but for believers. It encourages the church. So sign here, I know this is a little difficult, means God's judgment. Uninterpreted tongues is not a sign of spirituality for the believer, 
but it becomes a sign of judgment for the unbeliever, like the Assyrians were when they went in. Since the unbeliever cannot understand what is being said, then he or they, whoever they are, maybe they've wandered in off the street and everybody's speaking in tongues, they reject the message of the church without understanding the gospel. So it becomes a sign of judgment. You see, this is a contrast to what the Corinthians were thinking. They thought that tongues was a sign of their spirituality. Paul says, no, this is a sign that is a disadvantage to unbelievers because it is unintelligible. So he gives an example now. Here we are, verse 23, 24, example. So if the whole church comes together, we've all come together, and everyone speaks in tongues and inquires or unbelievers wander in off the street or come or somebody's brought them, They'll not, will they not say you're out of your mind? I've had that happen to me. Years ago, I, were, I really was trying to struggling with spiritual gifts and what they meant. So I went to all kinds of charismatic and Pentecostal churches and meetings of various kinds. And I was in this particular church. I knew the pastor personally. And it was a large church. And uh, there were probably about 1,000 people there. And at one point in the service, every single person was standing up loudly speaking in tongues or singing in tongues. And the person standing right beside me, uh, this was quite a way into the service, it was a long service, and uh, right beside me said, isn't that beautiful? And I just looked and walked out. And that was, the, the, in a way, for what I was trying to discover, that really helped me understand this chapter. Yeah, they sound. I thought if somebody wasn't a Christian and they don't have any idea of Christianity is late and they came here, they think everybody's kind of crazy. But, verse 24, if a non-believer or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, giving a message from God in the church, and we'll see how they do that in a moment, then they're convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. It's a picture of salvation. The effect of prophecy or a message from God's word can convert unbelievers. Can convert unbelievers. And, uh, you know, I think it's important to realize that. Now, uh, I always explain the gospel at the end of my sermons in a, in a way, but I don't ask for a response that's visible. I used to, but uh, nobody ever responded, so I gave it up. <laughs> Not really. Uh, Sometimes I do, but here's what's happened to me over all the decades. We've been this church for, been doing this for well over 35 years. Uh, many times, some of you remember Rosalie. Rosalie Brady, what a wonderful saint. She's in heaven now. She's just a wonderful lady in our church, an older lady and so positive and joyful. And she said to me one time, not long before she had to leave because of hospital, going to hospital and all of this, she said, you know, when I first came to this church, I thought I was a Christian. And I was here a long time, months. And one Sunday, I'm sitting in the church just listening to your sermon. I don't even know, remember what it was about. And I thought, I'm not a Christian. And she said, I became a Christian at that moment. And it changed her life. 
And I can multiply that story time after time. I've literally had people come to me to say, I came to the church for the first time. I've been going to church for years and years. And uh, I always thought I was a believer. And uh, you were just teaching some verses through the Bible. And I realized, oh, I'm not an, I, I, I need to be saved. And so if we are doing church the right way, God, the Holy Spirit, will save a lot of people. So Paul has now taken care of the problem of uninterpreted tongues. They neither edify the saints gathered nor convert sinners. So now Paul turns the problem of order. There must be order. This is so important. Obviously, the church gathered, even in that day, was organized. Was organized. Look at verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, come to the church gathered, each of you has a hymn. Some people think that means a, uh, a song uh, or something like that. So you've got a hymn or a word of instruction, something you want to say, or a revelation or a, a tongue or an interpretation that can go on in the church with an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. I'm going to add a word because of last week's sermon. So that the church may be built up in love and then operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And you'll remember we ended, I think it was last week, with these questions. And one of the questions was, the answer was obvious, do all speak in tongues? The answer was no. Then he says in verse 27, so he says, this is what the church service should look like. If anyone does speak in a tongue, two, or at the most three, that's it, should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. I was in a service one time in a Calvary chapel, and somebody, uh, it it was a service that was designed to have people use the gifts openly. And it was all uh, members and believers of the church. And someone stood up and spoke in a tongue. That was allowed. And then the pastor leading the meeting says, do we have anybody here that can interpret that? And there was dead silence. And then he said, no more of that. That's enough of that. And there's no interpreter. It didn't cause any problem at all. It was very short. And we went on, and it was a wonderful service. So... He makes it clear that you're not going to have more than three, period, max, that are going to do that. And that will guarantee that tongues never dominates any service, which was a problem. Now, verse 28, if there is no interpreter, then the speaker should keep quiet. The person may have a message in tongues and thinking they've got this tongues, but you'd keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God and I just add this because that's what he's talking about, in private as a verse to the assembly. So you're not going to be able to share that this week. Verse 29, two or three prophets. In other words, this isn't like Jeremiah or like Isaiah. That's not the kind of prophets. This is the gift of prophecy. Two or three who have the gift of prophecy should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Now, here's something you should know about the gift of prophecy. The prophecy isn't God says, that's not it. When somebody comes up to me, and I've had this happen quite a few times over the decades, where somebody will come up and say, uh, God told me to tell you. 
Well, right now, that person just cut me out of the conversation. Am I going to argue with God? You know, and uh, uh, that pretty well ends the conversation. No, no, prophecy isn't like that. Prophecy is an explanation for, remember, encouragement, strengthening, and comfort. And it would be proper to say, as somebody already said to me this morning, in my quiet time this morning, uh, this has never happened before, uh, you know, I really felt that uh, through that, that, through the scripture God was saying that I need to pray for my pastor. Wow, that's, I have no idea how good that made me feel. That's different. But it wasn't a, like a command. And so he's saying two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. That would be the elders in the church. He doesn't talk about them, but all the churches had elders. They're the male leaders in the church. And so they should speak with others, should weigh carefully what is being said. Even the congregation might do that. Somebody might give a prophecy and, uh, and, uh, uh, to encourage everybody, and everybody says amen, and that's, uh, that's wonderful. And then he says, talk about order. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. And so you, you may think, well, how do they do that? Well, they would have had a system. This didn't just happen, you know, they, they organized it. Maybe, maybe the other person stood up quietly and was recognized or put his hand up or her hand because both men and women could prophesy. And so the first speaker should stop, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. And then this is an important verse because I experienced the opposite when my trip through some of these churches. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. In other words, God's never going to say, have somebody stand and say, God just intervened and told me to stop the service, and I've got something to say, and you're all doing everything wrong, and no, that's not, that's not it. No, you, you don't have to do that. The, 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 you could go to the elder or the pastors, the leaders of the church, and say, you know, I really felt strongly during the service, and you could say something, and I've actually, not very many times, but from time to time, have said, you know, I have a message from somebody that I really believe came from God, and they felt in the middle of our service last week, and that type of thing. I even mentioned it recently where I met with somebody who... Uh, met with me privately and said that I had said some things in a way that he thought I could have said them better uh, for a different for certain kinds of people in the church and it was a mess. I took it very great. Thank you very much. It helped me a lot. So you're not out of control. Verse 33: For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And then he says, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. So it isn't just you Corinthians. This is the way we're all to do it. Now, let me say this. The character of God is reflected in the worship of the saints, all of us. How we worship is very important. It reflects what we think of God, and therefore when our worship is viewed, people who see us will make a judgment on their view of our view of God. Uh, we had a young uh, person, a teenager, uh, in our church for a couple of months recently, uh, who was, went to all kinds of different uh, meetings and was in the church services here uh, every Wednesday and Sunday. And uh, somebody asked him at one point, uh, you know, are you a Christian yet? And he said, no, I'm not, but I want to be because I look at the people here and they're so happy and joyful. 
Oh, that's good. Our worship should exhibit peace and harmony, never a loss of control. So could I suggest, though, could I, could I suggest that God is not the God of the stuffed shirt, <laughs> nor is he the God of the raving fanatic, but he's the God of awesome holiness and overpowering joy. And then he says, this is probably one of the most controversial two verses in the Scripture. I don't see anything controversial. Amen. <laughs> yeah, women should remain silent in the churches. I'm in danger of going too overtime, but I've got to tell you, uh, we had a, a, a great home fellowship this week. And in the home fellowship, I was teaching from the book of Revelation. And in the middle of the home fellowship, uh, Valerie, my first wife for the last 54 years, uh, she uh, interrupted and said, but what about this and what about that? And I stopped and I looked at everybody. We know each other really well. And I said, this Sunday, I'm speaking on 1 Corinthians chapter 14, <laughs> verse 34, which says, if I remember it rightly, that... Uh, women who are married to men should, not re should remain silent and not interrupt their sermons while they're teaching. And uh, Valerie hit me in the back, and everybody went on. So, but now here's what it means, and I think I've, I, I trust God that this is what it means. Women should remain silent in the churches. Got to keep in the context now. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask for their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, remember the context. The context is that there have been some messages, and the messages are being judged by the church and especially by the male leadership in the church. But let me just remind us of a few things. Acts chapter 2, verse 16, 17, and 18, the first sermon of the early church by, by Peter. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, all, every ethnicity you could imagine. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, sons and daughters, male and female. And your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. And even on my servants, both men and women... I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they, both men and women, will prophesy. So women can prophesy in the church. Paul's already said that. And further, in 1 Corinthians 11, where I did the avoiding heresy uh, sermon, we saw that Paul made provision for women to prophesy in the church gathered. And you can go back and listen to that sermon if you wanted to. Paul was... Paul has not changed his mind regarding women in the church. Nevertheless, Paul wrote these words to Timothy. Now, this is really important. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, 12, and 13. A woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. Submission to what? Well, submission to the leadership in the church. Uh, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man in the leadership of the church. She must be quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. That was the creation order, order. So while the prophetic messages are being weighed, and some, maybe one of those messages was a woman that prophesied, and some of them may uh, come from a woman, 
the other women in the church cannot participate in the testing of these messages because if the male leadership considers the messages authentic, the church then becomes committed to the content of the messages approved by the elders of the church. And maybe later, if the married women especially want to talk to their husbands about why they went this way or that way, he said that'd be fine. And then he says, he's not talking to women here, he's talking to the church, verse 36. Or did the word of God originate with you in the Corinthian church, or are you the only people it has reached? There's a lot of sarcasm there. He's pretty fed up right now. Paul is saying, who do you think you are to do things differently than the other churches where I have taught? You're not the origin of all truth, but you're acting as if you are. And then in verse 37, we're nearly done. If anybody thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command, the Lord's command. Remember in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says, I want you to know that no one can say Jesus is Lord except the Holy Spirit. So <coughs> this is a message from, through Paul by the Holy Spirit. But if anyone ignores this, he says, the, he's an apostle. There aren't any apostles today. He's an apostle. They will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Notice that he says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. And do not forbid the speaking in tongues. But, last verse, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, when we come to gather at Calvary Chapel, so the, the, I'm going to make this my, this is it, I'm done. I'm going to just make this a, a charge to all of us together. So when we come together, to gather at Calvary Chapel of Sarasota, just like Paul said, every one of us should be ready to worship or to play your instrument or teach a Sunday school class or work in the nursery or manage the sound and video, or teach in the Mod Pod, or pass out bulletins, or help with the parking and the safety crew, or serve in the cafe, or pray for the service, or assist with the youth, or preach a sermon. But expect God to speak to us, and we should be all watching for others who may encourage us as we encourage them. Plan to take notes during the sermon and respond to what is being taught as you become the church scattered. I started originally not just in the sermon, but about Israel. Israel's having a terrible war right now, and it has a lot to do with prophecy. But we are in America. The, the gospel needs to go out. We need to have a church that is, has it together, that is growing. And as we scatter, we're telling many, many people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it's as simple as saying, I repent, turn from my sinfulness, and I need a Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me on the cross. I come into my life and change me, and he'll do that. And as you listen to the future messages and the discipleship in the church and build relationships, you'll grow and become uh, another useful part of the body of Christ, the church for forever. So let's pray. Stand with me. Father, uh, we're in very troubled times, 
And we don't have the problems that Paul's talking about in the church. I'm so thankful that you have led us in such a way that we don't, but we still can be forewarned so that we don't fall into that kind of error. Help us, Father, to be well-organized and to care about one another and to show true love and to exercise our snowflakeness where we're all needed, all necessary, we're all the same but different. And help us to really love one another as we use our giftedness among each other and then go out and reach many with the good news about Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.